welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 138, Food, Language, and Writing, 18th Century America, an interview with Laura France, coming to you on Thursday, April 18th, 2019. Now, this is an audio podcast, but I also always put the episodes up on YouTube, unless I interview somebody who doesn't want to be on YouTube. So there's a few episodes missing. And today I decided that I was going to do this introduction portion specifically for those watching on YouTube. Behind me, and you cannot see nearly all of it, are 166 boxes that just got delivered to our apartment. Our apartment looked so neat and clean in a way that I'm not used to living really. And then I remembered why, (laughs) because I own a lot more stuff that has recently moved from a storage unit in California all the way over to Malmö, Sweden, via Germany. That's who the, uh, the guys were who delivered it. They brought it up from, I think, Hamburg, Germany. So... I have quite the task ahead of myself. I was not really joking when I told some of my friends, oh yeah, as long as I get totally unpacked within a year, I'll be happy. (laughs) But you have to remember, a lot of the stuff has been packed in boxes, or at least I've used the same boxes, so (laughs) I, I think I know it's in them, for at least eight years. For instance, if you're watching on YouTube, let me just point out, This box right here, if you were to zoom in on it, you would be able to see that it says Australian van lines. The last time we lived in Australia was the near the end of 2011. And it is now April 2019. So there you go. Um, There is also a box right over there, that big silver one on top. That's my wedding dress. I just it's so beautiful my mom wore it my aunt wore it and there's no way I'm getting rid of it but I have no idea what to do with it the only reason I fit into it after you know following women who were born a few decades earlier when you did whatever you had to in order to have the little 24 inch waist it's just not really (laughs) the lifestyle that I lead right now yeah the only way I fit into that dress when I was 22 is we took out every single seam to its it's maximum. (laughs) And I wore a corset. Um, That wedding dress is probably never going on this body again. And I don't know where it should go, but I can't get rid of it. It's a family heirloom. So yes, my 29th wedding anniversary is in two, three weeks. (laughs) I've had that dress a long time, but you can see it's in a new box. So I don't know. Does that mean anything? (laughs) Now it looks like way over there, The bedroom looks neat and clean, right? (laughs) That's because you cannot see when you walk in. Literally, the moving people, I had my list. They would say box 21, I checked it off. Box 142, I checked it off. There are, remember, 166 boxes delivered. And so I'm checking things off and I'm like, okay, bedroom please, office please, living room please. So I didn't even go in the bedroom until they were done because I was busy. And I went in there and went, oh! And I just burst out laughing because I was like, ah, I didn't think that I sent that much stuff to the bedroom. I'm going to have to get in from John's side of the bed until we unpack things. And oh my gosh. But then I had this writing idea. So that's part of the reason why I decided, I, honestly, I decided that the introduction would be fun just from the ridiculousness of seeing my living room. Um, but also... 
And particularly if you're like, hey, I'm only listening on audio. Don't tell me about things I can't see, which um, the videos, by the way, are always on youtube.com forward slash Kitty Buholtz, or you can search for Right Now Workshop Podcast. Um, so that's the, the channel and the playlist. Okay, so even if you're just listening and you're um, not able to see, just imagine being almost entirely surrounded by boxes. Some of these boxes you have not opened in years. A lot of them you know it's on the very top of the box because you open them so that you could look inside, write down what you think is in it, and tape it back up again, and then let the movers take it away because you have to write something down on the inventory list. Imagine your whole life being able to be packaged up in 100 or 200 boxes. Every memory of everything that you've ever done that you haven't thrown away. Every book that you've read and haven't gotten rid of and every book that you have bought maybe from a garage sale, maybe brand new, that you're like, I'm not getting rid of this book until I read it and I'm determined to read it. I just haven't had time to read it yet. <laughs> um, a wedding dress from 1900 and I don't know. Um, let's see, my oldest siblings were born in the late 50s. So from the, from the mid 1950s, uh, what else? I, I, I actually don't even know <laughs> because it's been uh, for some of these boxes 10 or more years since I've even really opened them and gotten all the way to the bottom. On the other hand, there are things that I can tell you about. Let's see if I move this way. See these white boxes right here, these long ones? I have six boxes of just comic books. Just comic books. I'm not even sure that includes some of the um, like hardback graphic novels that we own. Now, most of those, at least I think five of the six boxes are John's, but there's a whole box that's just mine. We have at least six boxes of DVDs, not including the two boxes of DVDs we brought with us earlier because we wanted to be able to watch our own favorite stuff. We've got at least one box of just Xbox and PlayStation games. Why am I mentioning some of these things? Because it occurred to me you could really build a character out of this. You could really build an interesting multi-dimensional character by just imagining if your character moved packed up everything they owned in the world, what would they unpack when they got there? And also, exactly how would things look when they unpacked when they got there? Are the boxes new? Are they like some of mine, 12 or more years old? Uh, some of my boxes have somebody else's name on them because one of my friends moved, one of our, our friends moved and uh, gave us their boxes. So some of them say um, kids clothes. Well, John and I don't have kids. I know for sure these are boxes that came from Ray and Jess. Um, there is one box that has um, this really incredibly cushiony, soft um, bath mat. You know, when you first step out of the bath, it's like super duper thick and soft. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot I had that. Yay. And it has a bunch of toiletries. And it also has some weird stuff that I'm like, this is not bathroom stuff, but I can't really tell what it is until I get to the bottom of the box. Um, other boxes have... Uh, framed movie posters, which seems pretty cool until you really look at them and realize, oh yes, these are the $10 frames that we bought when we could afford $10 frames and nothing more. <laughs> so it's literally plastic on plastic with a movie poster 
inside that has thumbtack holes in all four corners because we had upgraded from thumbtacks to a $10 plastic frame. And we still have this stuff. So, I mean, think about what your character would do if they were unpacking and they found kitchen stuff and bathroom stuff and bedroom stuff in the same box. Like, what, what would that mean if you were watching them unpack? That they packed in a hurry? That they don't care? Do they have old boxes, new boxes, somebody else's boxes? Does that mean this is the first time they've moved? They've moved 14 times. There's so many things that you could do with this. So I wanted to share it with you because hopefully you will be thinking about something that has to do with your character that is a new idea that you only just thought of in terms of how would they pack if they had to move and they had lots of time. I've done that. How would they pack if they had to move and they had less than two weeks to pack up their entire life? Sadly, I've done that. <laughs> How would they pack or unpack if they were only moving some of their stuff for a year? I've done that. Uh, what would happen if they thought they were going someplace for just two or three months, brought suitcases, ended up being there for a year? What are they going to pack and bring back home with them? I've done that. <laughs> so the whole process could end up being very, very interesting. Um, hopefully I will be thinking about this at least a little bit as I'm unpacking because I think that it will help me to um, see things about myself, remember things about myself more. And in terms of characters and what do characters do and what, what's different about this character, I don't think that you could hear that just now because I have a very good quality microphone. But um, if you just heard the sound of a motorcycle, that is the sound that I give my husband's texts. And I think if he were to ever call me, which he doesn't use the phone, <laughs> um, I think that it would also be the sound of a motorcycle. And I have him on the... Um, there's an option on your iPhone, probably your Android phone too, where you can um, have certain numbers will come through even if you have do not disturb on. Um, <laughs> and so uh, just now there was another sound that you might have heard and that again was my husband's texting coming through on my computer because I didn't answer my phone. Uh, so who does your character have who can get through Do Not Disturb, which also means that, for instance, last week, the sound of a motorcycle interrupted when I was in a meeting, a quiet meeting with people, and I was like fumbling trying to get the sound to turn off, but I couldn't really turn it off unless I turned off the entire phone because I had set his number to be able to come through Do Not Disturb. There are so many interesting things that you could do with characters when you start thinking about um, just the weird and interesting things in your own everyday life. So since I have a lot of weird and interesting things in my everyday life right now, I thought I would share them with you in case you have the nice, normal, calm life where you've been living in the same place happily, neatly for 10 or 20 or 30 years. Because I don't know, maybe I envy you a little bit. Maybe you envy me a little bit. <laughs> but we can, look at, uh, we can look at each other's lives and think about our characters a little bit differently. And I have to say that that has really got me on kind of a kick for, ooh, what could I do with this or that? That's, that's the sound that my husband's text makes. Okay, so that was the thing that I wanted to share with you. Um, I hope that you have some fun with this because I think that that would probably be the most useful way to do it is to make it super duper fun. Think of all the different rooms and what's in them, how you would pack them, what would happen if you were still packing when the movers have come to start picking up the boxes. 
that has also happened to me. Uh, what ends up getting thrown in the last four or five boxes because you're like, crap, I just need to get everything in a box. And now the last four or five boxes, I would literally not even know what was in them because it's the last bits of things from the bedroom, the bathroom, the kitchen, whatever. Have fun. Tell me if you do something really interesting with it. Um, I'm definitely going to be working on something. I don't know what <laughs> this weekend with the whole idea of it. Okay. Now that we've got the creative bit from me out of the way, um, I want to give you uh, right into the hands of Laura France. She is our guest uh, speaker today, uh, the guest on the show, and she writes books mostly set in 18th century America. So 1700s when you know, America was just sort of growing into itself. Um, we have a very long and fun conversation at the very beginning just talking about food because, you know, like how did people eat? You think that you know, and then Laura's like, actually, this is what I learned. Um, so I think that you're going to have a lot of fun with it. If you write historical, particularly colonial America historical, you'll probably find some uh, great interesting takeaways. But you know what? I always find something interesting and helpful and thought-provoking whenever I'm talking to any writer, no matter if they're writing something that I write or not. Uh, so I think that you're also going to find the same. I hope you do. Uh, so let's just get right into it. Here's Laura. Today's guest is Laura France. Laura is a Christie Award finalist and the ECPA best-selling author of several books, including The Frontiersman's Daughter, Courting Morrow Little, the Colonel's Lady, and The Lace Maker. She lives and writes in a log cabin in the heart of Kentucky. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Delighted to be here with you today on this uh, second day of spring, at least in my neck of the Kentucky woods. So, Oh, man, I was so excited that you told me that spring was here because I was like, oh, right, is it here already? <laughs> I have fooled you. <laughs> uh, now people who are listening in april are going to be uh spring's been here for a while please <laughs> that's true that we should just say yeah we're into spring now <laughs> that's right <laughs> three months oh so okay first of all it has to be asked because it's right there in the bio you write in a log cabin in Kentucky. Tell us more. I know. Well, it's funny because this broadcast, I'm uh, actually at my mom's house today, who is down the road from the cabin because I'm taking care of her. She has some health issues because uh, our caregiver is not here. But uh, so otherwise, I would be coming to you live from the cabin loft, as I like to say. Um, I The cabin is a gift from God that only he gave because it is located along Boone's Trace where my hero Daniel Boone first came into Kentucky. And wow. the historical marker for it is very near the cabin. I did not know that when we bought the cabin several years ago, but it just kind of was God's gift to me, kind of that sweet historical uh, significance that, that means so much to me. And wow. so maybe next time I'll come to you live from the cabin loft. <laughs> I think we need to do that sometime. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't think that it's a cool idea to write in a log cabin? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, thank you. It is endless inspiration. I bet. Now, and also because you write historicals set in the American colonies slash early states, maybe, it must be amazing that you live near a marker having to do with Daniel Boone. I know. Kentucky, I, I was driving around the other day with my mom and 
there are just so many historic markers here. And um, it, it's just a feast for anybody interested in history. You don't have to go very far. And Kentucky does a great job with historic preservation. So I'm extremely blessed. I just attended a culinary uh, colonial workshop at Fort Boonesboro here wow. uh, last weekend. And it was just heavenly. We prepared a multi-course meal like Daniel Boone would have eaten and then we can we ate it and it was just you know that's history and the tasting as they call it <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome was it good it was excellent in fact i had seconds on the creamed peas and it just we had the boohee tea and we had chicken fricassee which was one of abraham lincoln's favorite dishes uh, after the century that i'm that I'm in love with. The 18th century is my century, but it was delicious, and it corrected some of my misconceptions about these poor starving settlers. They they were quite hungry in the early years, but by the time of the meal that we made, when they were eating dishes like that, uh, we they're enviable. Their table is enviable, and I'm glad to know that. I love to work foodie details into my novels, so so brace yourself. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yes, I, I am quite a fan of making sure that there's plenty of interesting food in my in my books to the point where uh, my narrator at one point wrote me and said, you're making me hungry reading your oh. book. <laughs> hangry. Yeah, more hangry. Oh, I love those foodie details. And And food was so different back then. You know, there are some dishes like chicken fricassee that have lasted and we have our... Um, scones or however you pronounce that but but the palate then and now was quite quite different I wonder if those early settlers could look at us today they would just probably be aghast at what we default to you know when we go to our fast food restaurants and things like that maybe they'd be envious I don't know <laughs> <laughs> well you know I would guess, and this is such a total guess, that it's probably somewhere like when we uh, go visit another area of the world, whether it's, you know, another area of our country or, or another country altogether, um, and we eat something that is really different or that seems like it's the same thing on the menu, but then you eat it and you're like, that's not at all what I thought I was going to eat. Exactly. I mean, it's so fascinating. You know, when you're a writer and researcher of history, even food history, it's just it's an it's endless education. I, just when I think I have a grasp of all things 18th century, and I do not, I'm <laughs> I'm just completely humbled, almost humiliated by how much there is still to know. You know, mm -hmm. I I remember uh, talking to somebody at William and Mary in Virginia, and they said, you know something about the past is like a different country. The 18th century is like a different country, which kind of fits with what you just said. I agree. Wow. Okay. So now you got me thinking about this thing that I can't get out of my head. So if they have these bountiful tables, and of course, you know, there would be lots, I would, the pictures I have in my head, there's lots of people eating around these tables, but what do they do with leftovers since there isn't a refrigerator? I mean, I know that they're in some places were ice boxes, but. Right. Well, they usually had us, well, not everybody, but spring houses 
were built often of rock over a an existing creek, which they submerge things in and crocs and different piggins and things oh. to keep food and beverages cold. But, you know, and then they had their ice houses, some of them, the wealthier people that would, would bring the ice in. And, and I've actually been in those well, that's fascinating. That was another source of keeping food. But a lot of your early settlers, you know, the smokehouse was the uh, the outbuilding. Everything was smoked or dried or, uh, you know, preserved somehow because of that rancid quality, especially in the heat of the South, you know, in other places around the country. But summer was a big issue. And I do I know that they, those early settlers ate things that would make us extremely ill. Um, oh. It's, their palate was quite hardened and they didn't fare well with dirty water, which they had to deal with a lot of dirty water. So even the children in the colonial period were drinking small beer and ale and spirits, which is horrifying to me, but that is just what they did. Yeah. And that's another thing you learn and you, you don't want to put drinking children in Christian fiction, but it was a reality. They babies drank and small children drank. In fact, at Fort Boonesboro, when I did the culinary workshop, um, they ha were joking about that by about eight o'clock in the morning, most of the settlement was intoxicated. So they, they did a lot of their daily chores in a, a state of euphoria simply from drink. I, it's a fascinating thing. <laughs> I don't, wow. I, I can't put that in my Christian fiction, but that was the reality <laughs> of those pioneer days. Well, I have not heard this. I mean, I knew, I knew that uh, there's lots of places in the world um, now or in the past where the water is not good enough quality and people drink um, preserved beverages, which would then be alcoholic beverages yes. uh, as a big part of their. But I always assumed it was stuff that was somehow watered down and wouldn't. But you know what? That, yeah, I'm thinking about myself after two glasses of wine. So oh. yeah, how do you focus enough to... <laughs> I know how do you chop wood and shoot, you know, the, right. the your game for supper. And I think they had such a tolerance to it, even the yeah. children probably. And I'm sure there, you know, there were those that were outright, um, I don't want to say, I hate to use the word drunks, but sots, as they used to say in their terminology. And then I, yeah. I, I would like to think the majority of pioneers rain themselves in but that was their go-to beverage and you know we read of when the harvest time they made the switchel which was apparently a delicious beverage with like ginger and spirits and you know they rewarded the revolutionary war soldiers george washington even did with rum so it was very much a part of the culture it was very yeah. accepted and um i but i have a hard time that because i'm a teetotaler and i you know, I'm not going to judge anybody if they're drinking, but I I don't even have a baseline, you know, with which to appreciate yeah. their inebriation or their, their reliance on spirits, but it was very much a part of that generation or that era. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not one of those people who watches any of the foodie reality shows. Um, you know, I, if I'm at somebody's house and they're watching it, then I watch it, but I don't turn it on myself, but oh. <laughs> I apparently do have 
a big enough fascination with food where I have still another food question. Oh, please so, bring it on. You can tell it's a favorite topic. <laughs> I do. I really do. Well, and I have food on the brain because I'm about ready to go to a country I haven't been to and I just want to eat everything that they have available oh, to yum. me. That sounds so yeah. good. <laughs> okay. So again, just the pictures that I had in my mind, uh, revolution, you know, um, I was going to say Revolutionary War America, but let's just say um, 1700s America, 18th century America. Um, I have in my mind crystal clear streams and clear running, flowing water and wells everywhere. But you were talking about dirty water and that's why they were... Dirty water. In fact, you know, there were, there was some fresh drinking water, but when you get people together, bad things happen. It's polluted. And, you know... A lot of pioneers, what, what they defaulted to when the community well or whatever didn't work, um, they would dig their own wells. But I'm writing a novel right now in Jamestown, Virginia, 1634, and you would be aghast at the community well became the cesspool and decimated a lot of the Jamestown settlers. And even now in recent excavations of that well in Jamestown with those first settlers, they have uncovered things that people threw in that well. And so it was just, you know, a source of pollution, you know, yeah. it's there, there are so many tales that are just horrifying. You think of a new country, fresh water, it did exist, but not usually in communities. If you found a spring, Settlers relied on springs, the, that natural bubbling, bubbling occurrence that came out of a rock or the ground, um, and that was your purest form of water. Beware anything else. You know, even today we have beaver fever, Giardia, because I love to hike, and in the mountains of Washington State and different things, you know, we... I have friends that have become quite sick. So it's it's a problem today as it was back then, even in these, okay. quote, pristine areas. Um, but anyway, there's your water history for the day. And I'm sure wow. I'm missing some points. But those poor <laughs> Jamestown settlers, I'm having to to avoid the wells in the settlements and and be a little creative about how, because I can't use spirits. You know, I mean, I do use spirits, but... Come on, people, we need a little fresh water in this book. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> These are Christian characters. <laughs> Those are fine lines sometimes. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so let's go. So I'll, I'll walk away from food for just a minute. Let's kind of okay. go back to the beginning a little bit. You are no newcomer to writing fiction. This is not your first or second book. You've got quite a few out. And it looks like every single one of them are in uh, the 1700s in the United States slash colonies. Is that right? All but two. Uh, I, most of my novels, I guess we're up to 10 now, all of them are standalones, except I do have one series tucked in kind of the middle. It's the Ballantine Legacy. One of my favorite covers of all times is the start of that series. It's called Love's Reckoning. And just a stunning, stunning cover of a woman in a colonial costume. But that that story spanned almost 100 years. So I had to move from colonial America into the 19th century for the, the last two books in that series. And I don't know 19th century like I do the 18th century. And I don't particularly 
care for it either. I, I don't want to say it bores me because I love it's a part of history, but it, it can't hold a candle in my historical head to uh, the 18th century when everything was roiling and just so full of unrest as our nation was founded and we made war on England and did some quite um, daunting things. But the 19th century did have the Civil War. That was a heartbreaking conflict but I find the 18th century hard to beat. So those two books that jumped out of the 18th century of mine is in my series, the only series I wrote. I do prefer standalones. So okay. if you're enjoying standalone novels, I'd love for uh, readers to, to you know, delve into those. There's plenty of them. Let's see, eight now, eight standalones. Or, or no, seven standalones. Okay. All right. Now, so... Your newest book came out January 1st. This is 2019 we're talking about, and it's called A Bound Heart. Now, this one actually starts in Scotland, and is this also a first for you, starting someplace else besides the Americas? It is. It's, it was quite a leap for my publisher, too. I mean, a lot of the Regency novels are set, of course, in England, but I wasn't sure they would go for that. I, I don't, um, I, I didn't, because I'm a not a Scot. Well, I was because this Abound Heart is based on my sixth great grandfather who was expelled from Scotland and came to Virginia. So I loosely based the story around him. He's my ancestral hero. But um, I, I, since I'm not a native Scot, although I've mm -hmm. been there quite a few times, I didn't feel I had the you know, could tell the tale like a native Scot would. I could only tell it through my limited perception of having my sixth great grandfather leave Scotland and come to America. I mean, that was a long time ago. So yeah. I, I think my publisher also liked the fact that I was going to divide the book into segments. So in A Bound Heart, the first third of the book is in Scotland, and then you have about a third of the book at sea, because I've read so many stories where they just gloss over, you know, okay, we're leaving Scotland now, and then the next page is, we're in America, and I'm like, no, that is not how it happened. It was yeah. a horrible, in many cases, voyage. Many ships were lost at sea. People never arrived. You know, they got diverted. There were pirates. Anyway, I so a a third of the, the middle section of that book is set at sea, which is a whole different culture being on a ship. And then yeah. the last third or a little bit, maybe more is set in colonial Virginia, which traces my ancestors path. And I even have a little bit of a stint. My hero goes to um, the, goes, goes south. I don't want any spoilers, but he lands in another area. And I, I, I just had a ball with that. Now I want to go there too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So one of the things that this, this is the first of your books that I read, and unfortunately I couldn't read it fast enough to have finished it by the time you and I are talking. <laughs> but, um, but now that I'm like, oh, okay, well now I sort of have an idea of the adventures coming up. Cause I was thinking about some of the things that, um, that you were kind of planting in the first third and thinking, oh, that's going to happen on the ship. I think something like this is going to be, you know, involved oh. on the ship. So uh, without giving anything away, I'm sure you can guess some of the things that I'm thinking. Yes, oh, yeah. you're a very, I love that in a reader, you're guessing and yeah. you're uh, anticipating, which is so, it makes the reading experience so much more enjoyable. It is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for so, reading. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And here's where the big compliment comes in. And I want to know if it's natural or learned because I was, and am, I'm still in, like, I, I don't know how many pages it would be in a print book. I'm quite, quite a bit into the beginning, like probably at least a quarter of the way. And you are consistently, you have this voice and tone and storytelling style, but, um, it's all those things and word choice that make it sound like the book was written, you know, 150 years ago, I, not last year. Oh, I love that. I'll take that as a compliment from you. I had a, I'm a member of the DAR and in my meeting last week, one of my readers, who's an older lady, she came to me and she said, you know, I really enjoy your books once I get into them, but I struggle with that language because you write in a, you know, using that archaic language. And I will tell you, it's, I don't think it was an accident when I was, I've been, I wrote my first story when I was seven. So I've had a nice. lifetime of writing and I'm now 50 something. Oh, that hurts. But um, <laughs> anyway, I, I look back and I can see how faithful God was in developing me as a storyteller, because this is what happened. As a child, I was fascinated by history. I just devoured all the little biographies of famous historical people. Well, fast forward to my uh, college years and the Lord allowed me to go abroad in England and I lived in a castle in a manor and studied the American Revolution from the British perspective. Wow. I also, while I was there, it was like a fairy tale to me. I also, while I was there, um, did a very intensive course of study on 18th century literature. And I did that at my home college in the States the backbone of my English degree is 18th century. So you can see where I just absorbed all that language, just, you know, all that. I think the archaic language is beautiful. It's, it's loses readers, I know, but I think it makes the novel more believable in yeah. some respects. And you have the heart and head to appreciate it. So thank you for noticing that. You know, so I, this book comes with a glossary. It's just where the Scottish terms, but sometimes I think, well, maybe we need a glossary for those archaic uh, terms that I use just all the time. Yeah. But you know what? I always felt like um, if you can, if you can write the, because it mostly it comes out in dialogue. The, there are other places where you're in the point of view of a character who is using a few terms, like so less than what's in the dialogue. But I always feel like if you can write it in a way that it sounds, um, has that rich sound that you're going for, you know, whatever uh, culture or, or time period or whatever that it is that you're writing in, right. and the reader can understand in context, then I feel like as long as I can understand, at least in context, and it's not too much, when it just kind of goes crazy, even if you give me, and there's a 14-page glossary instead of a two-page glossary, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, this is too much work for me to do when it's my downtime. You know? Right. Well, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about context, because if you're, you have to couch the word in context. You have to, if the reader is not going to know a lot of these words, because, you know, this is present day. But if you, it's just all about how you use that word in a sentence. And I remember when my editor offered me my first three book con contract from Ravel. I'll never forget, I've forgotten a lot of what was said, but as she was saying to me, talking to me about my writing before I signed the contract, I remember her saying, 
you have the gift to use the right word at the right time. It's all about your word choice. So I thought, you know, I never even thought of it before. And I do think it's a gift. It's not something that I've learned, maybe except by reading avidly as a child that taught me to write. But craft books absolutely mystify me and I don't, I can't follow them. I'm an intuitive writer, I think. I just... Uh, reading taught me how to write as a child. My mother's a reading teacher. Uh, I, I, you know, I read under the covers with a flashlight so I wouldn't get in trouble <laughs> at night. I was that kind too. of reader. And I think as a little sponge as a child, you absorb, you know, as a younger woman, I used to read all of Victoria Holtz novels. And I, even then I was aware of writing and different voices. And I remember that I got to read, I, I had read almost all of her novels and I was like 17 and I could actually reproduce a page using her voice. And I realized then, and it sounded a lot, it sounded like her, but I realized then that that is not my voice. I have my own voice, you know, and nobody had taught me that. So writing is a very unique, uh, individual thing, kind of like one's fingerprint. And I, I don't take any credit for it because I did not want to write. I wanted to do something else. I didn't even want to publish. I wanted to do something else as a child. Wow. And the Lord made it very clear to me that was, those weren't my gifts. So. <laughs> you know, we do tend to find out what our gifts are, whether it's God or other people telling us, yeah, you know what, you're, that's, that's not it. <laughs> Yes, hopefully kindly, but not always. Yeah. It's funny because um oh I can't think of exactly what the um I can't think of exactly what the context was, but we went to this church once for uh ten or eleven years, loved this pastor so much. Then we started moving around and at some point while we were moving, he ended up, you know, going to another place and we were crushed even though we weren't actually at the church in the moment, you know. But he, there would be like a couple of things that he said three or four times over 10 years, you know, you can't be too repetitive, but if you go every week, you know, you tend to hear it all. Yeah. And, and uh, so one of the things my husband and I keep in mind when we're deciding whether or not we're going to try something new or a different take on something old or whatever, we're like, okay, well, you remember what Mark always said, if you're not good at it, someone is bound to tell you. <laughs> oh, that's so true. And I think of Amazon reviews and reviewers, they're not shy about it either, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's true. Well, I, I really, um, I just wanted to make sure that I said something about the way that you, it's just, it sounds like, um, you know, something that, that I read that I should be able to look at the copyright page and it says, you know, 1800 oh, and something. <laughs> I'm so honored. I love that. Other readers might not appreciate it, but I love that. Thank you. I am in love with language. And another thing I'll say, and I'm sure most people write, who write, if already figured it out but but good writing has a rhythm it's yes. much like music and when yes. like in the novel I'm writing now about Jamestown and that that speech is even more archaic so I'm I'm having to be careful about how much of that I throw in because it's kind of distracting instead of edifying and enriching the book it's distracting but um anyway where was I going with that it's it's just music and rhythm it's music and rhythm it's funny because sometimes I know what I want to say and I'll start writing a sentence and I write most of my stuff by longhand because really? I've, yes, and most everything by longhand. And so I'm very, the, 
the words kind of like sing to me. And so I'll be writing it and I just did it the other day and I can't think of what I want to say to finish the sentence. And so I will just put dashes that keep the rhythm of the sentence. And I know that I have to, I put the number of dashes that are rhythmic and will, and so when I find the words, I can't use less than the number of dashes. It's quite, it sounds crazy, but it's true because writing has a rhythm. Good writing does. It's, yeah. I think it's quite like music. And yeah. somebody said to me once, oh, you write, it's like a symphony of words. And I Aww. thought, what a lovely thing to say, but yeah. I don't, you know, th there's a lot to be said for brevity and clean writing. Sometimes I love the purple prose and it's that old school uh, quality, but uh, it, it doesn't always work well present day, but I try to retain it if I can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? And I wonder if that's part of, um, cause I do remember as a child when I, even when I heard the words purple prose, I'm like, oh, even that sounds beautiful. Oh yes, I want to write that. And then, you know, my sixth grade teacher would be like, no, purple prose is bad. I'm like, no, it's beautiful. <laughs> it, it sounds so lovely. How can anything purple and prosy be bad? Exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I don't know whether or not anyone would say purple prose having to do with the way I'm just thinking about, you know, cause I've been reading the book for the last few days, like at every, every waking moment, trying to remember that when I'm <laughs> two or three times, I've been trying to remember when I go through a crosswalk, I should just look up long enough to make sure the cars are stopping because oh. I've got my Kindle down in front of me. You know? <laughs> oh no, you're one of those people we read about in the story that walk off the pier yeah. when, they're, when they're on their device. Exactly. I love it though. I love that you're that kind of a reader. That's, that's the kind of reader I write for. Yeah. So, um, okay. So we'll, we'll get away from, from purple prose for a minute here. I just realized that we've been talking and I'm talking about your book, A Bound Heart, but I haven't asked you, let's explain it for the listeners who haven't read it yet. So give us, give us the brief summary of the book and then let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you got the idea and Okay, great. Well, Bound Heart, you know, I never thought to set a story outside colonial America, basically, because that's what I know. And, but I've, when I joined the DAR, not, you know, a couple of years ago, we unearthed all my family geology. So I'm kind of answering your question backwards, but that's all right. I, I just rediscovered the ancestor that I had known about, and, but he's so fascinating because he's my, I'm a direct descendant. He's my sixth great grandfather. He was a baron um, at Wedderburn Castle, Berwickshire, Scotland, right along the very dangerous Scottish borders, right? right on the border of England. So they were the, he and his sons, they were called the Spears of Wedderburn. They, you know, inhabited this castle, a line of barons, and they were the, they were Scotland's first defense against England, and they had a horrific death toll in our family because wow. they were the first soldiers that the English came across and often mowed down. But anyway, when I became reacquainted with my George, my sixth great-grandfather, I thought, there is such a story there. I departed from it quite a bit in the novel because my George, as I call him, this is what happened. He was a Jacobite. We won't do that history lesson. It's complicated. But he became an enemy of the English king, as mo all Jacobites were. Um, and he was defeated on the battlefield. He was brought into a prison in um, 
England and Scotland, and he was sentenced while many of his cohorts who had rebelled against the king were drawn and quartered. He was simply, we don't know why, he was simply banished to colonial America. He lost his, his title, his, all his holdings. He lost Wedderburn Castle. They were actually turned over to a lesser relative in time. But he was yanked from everything he held dear in Scotland and he was put on basically a prison ship almost and turned into an indentured servant and taken to America. So he lands in colonial Virginia, and this is where I wish I could have written the story. He um, becomes the crown surveyor of Virginia. This is the truth about my George, the truth, because he, he is um, kin, he's actually a cousin to the governor. So colonial politics were a big deal. You know, they uh, he becomes a crown surveyor for colonial Virginia, and he ends up teaching George Washington surveying. Their signatures are on surveying documents when our nation's first president was 19 and 20 years old. So I thought there's another like the cabin, God's gift to me, because I have ignored this George for so many years. It's in my family tree. And then he, he suddenly kind of resurrected himself with the DAR, and I thought, there's a story there. Wow. And so a bound heart is about my George, Magnus McLeish, renamed, coming to America. Of course, I had to have a female, a heroine, because you can't write historical romance without both. And yeah. so I brought them from Scotland to colonial Virginia and then sent my hero, you know, off for a little bit um, in the end of the book. But happy ending. I always promise my readers the hap happily ever after, because that is what my stories are all about, though it might be a rocky road to get there. So this story, in essence, is based on my personal family history, but I do fictionalize, you know, quite a bit. My hero does not become a surveyor. He has a different adventure. He does not meet George Washington. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Indeed. Oh, wow. Okay. So, and then it's, so is it still different because it started in another country and then was on the ship, which is practically like being in another country. Yes. Um, do you think that it's, um, that the style of writing, not the style, but just the way that you wrote this book then, did it feel different from the way that you've written your other books? You know, not really. I mean, I had to be very respectful of Scotland and, you know, as a non-native or a once upon a time Scott, uh, I, it didn't, it was such an enjoyable book to write. I think because my focus now as I age is more history than romance, yeah. you know, there is a good bit, bit of romance in there, but the, the breaking the book into segments and, and changing locations quite a bit, that is, was quite new to me because there are a lot of books that I've written, especially in the frontier, where they pretty much stay in one spot. It wasn't until, uh, uh, you know, 20th century that people, most people didn't go 30 miles beyond where they lived in yeah. most any country. I mean, only if you had means and um, connections did you were you able to range further than that. My own relatives, I just visited the cemetery the other day here in um, central Kentucky where they are all lying, they didn't go, most of them, beyond the county. And it's just, so it's fascinating to set a story where our, but our ancestors did make huge leaps and bounds to give us our start here. And yeah. what I've discovered is uh, this book has unleashed 
quite a bit of mail from readers who have been digging in their own genealogy and have very similar stories of their own Scots ancestors coming to America because, you know, the native people were here, had been here for from time immemorial, but we are here because somebody got on a boat and, you know, whether against their will or, or within their own power and, and started this amazing country that is still relatively very new compared to Scotland. Oh, wow. Yeah. I found out, I think the week before I moved to Sweden that um, my family who, you know, just apparently doesn't talk about things much. uh, I I found out for one thing that I had this 92 year old cousin and I met her for the first time. I'm like, how, how come I didn't know that you existed or that, you know, like I, I recognize your name, but you can't say this to somebody. I thought you were dead. Oh, <laughs> amazing. I know. What a, yeah. was she, what was her reaction then? She knew who you? I was. Yeah. She knew who I was. I mean, we'd, we'd never met, but she yeah. knew everything about me because my aunt, let me think this through. I think she was my aunt's aunt or okay. my aunt's cousin, but like one generation above something like uh-huh. that. Uh, so, so we're sitting around this table looking at this box of old pictures of my aunts who had recently passed away. And so um, she's like, oh, this is so-and-so and this is so-and-so. Oh, and look, here's a picture of your Swedish relatives when they came to America. I'm like, what? Oh, how wonderful that would be. So now, like, I swear, every person that I've um, become friends with here in Sweden who's, who's Swedish, I, I have lots of friends from all over the world here, but every time uh, I, I start getting, you know, really close, at least three of my Swedish friends, I've said to them, you know, as soon as I can figure out my genealogy, maybe I'll find out we're cousins. <laughs> That is so true. I know, you know, I also often say to people who write me and say, well, my Scottish ancestor came over about the same time as your Scottish ancestor. You know, they were coming over in droves in the 18th century, particularly, and yeah. also the Irish because of the potato famine, but um, famines. But they'll say, I, I write back and I usually say, our ancestors might well have known each other because Scotland, many people don't realize is smaller than the state of Indiana. (laughs) So you, you know, it's not, the Scots look at America and it's so vast and they're just kind of in awe of that I've been told, but Scotland is a small country and, and those clans and the people that made up Scotland, you know, even 250 years ago, they intermarried, they, they knew the names, they knew the clans, they knew each other, they could identify the different dialects around Scotland, which is amazing to me because I can't yeah. tell what Scott speaks what and yeah. where from where, but they can. So I think I often say to readers, my ancestors might well have known your ancestors. You know, you can probably count on that. <laughs> That's awesome. And your, uh, your sixth great grandfather, um, that's a famous name, Hume. So either he or your family was in history books, right? Right. Definitely. And they're uh, George Washington's signatures on existing documents with George Hume. The interesting thing is the family tried to distance themselves from the displeasure of the king and they adopted the name home H O M E at some point. And the Wedderburn Castle, which exists now and is a beautiful setting for wedding venues. And I'm headed there next summer with my <gasps> firefighter son, but um, he, he's interested in his roots and I'm so thrilled. I think also mm-hmm. as you get older, perhaps 
that kindling to know where you came from grows like your 90, did you say 91 or 92 year old? 92 year old. Aunt or, I mean, she knew all about you and which <laughs> is such an honor and you yeah. just were learning about her, but I think her age gave her an appreciation perhaps for that family history. That's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah, that's, I'm finding the same thing the older I get. Well, and also there's a certain point at which you kind of look around and go, oh, I'm at that age where people are going to start dying. So have I asked all the questions that I meant to ask of the only people left who know the answer? And the answer is usually no, because my 83 year old grandmother who is in the other room and whom I'm helping with um, says often as she becomes more unwell that I, she had lived with her grandmother and great grandmother. And she wow. said, I wish I had written them questions, but I really at the time didn't want much to do with them because they were so different and were caught kind of in the 19th century uh, etiquette customs and this Elvis burst on the scene and they couldn't adjust. So, you know, she remembers them from that time period where she was coming of age and they were kind of obsolete but now she's fascinated by them you know and she thinks of all these things she wishes she could have asked them so you are very intuitive that way yes (laughs) well listen this is um way fun talking about writing and i always try to make sure that there are some tips that listeners can take away so since um would it be fair to call you a historical writer I think it is. I my publisher says I'm historical romance because that's how they build me. But I, I think I'm more historical. At least that's what my heart says. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think about? Um, I don't know. Let's say somebody is thinking about writing historical, and somebody else maybe is in the middle of the the quicksand morass of research where it's like, I may never write again because I can't get out of the research. You must have gone through some of these things yourself. What are some of the tips you would give back to the younger you or people who are listening now? You know, you have to follow your, your kind of your gut instinct. I love research. I love research almost as much as writing and all the rabbit trails that dangerously, you know, lead away from the writing. But I would say to writers, young writers or any, any writer who's, you know, kind of uh, putting their feelers out in their first manuscript or whatever, you write your passion, right? If it, if you don't like research, I would examine whether or not you are, maybe you're a contemporary writer. Maybe you would do better with that than you would become a historical writer. I, I do know historical writers that don't like research. I think it's a very hard partnership because yeah. your love of history, I do think shines through like the love of the archaic language, things like that. But examine, you know, why are you writing? you need to write first and foremost from your passion and, and you need to look at all the books on your shelves, go and stand before your bookcase and what you have on your shelves usually informs you as to what you should be writing. Because I really only read historical novels. Once in a while, I will venture out and do something crazy and read a contemporary book. But I, I just, historical is what sets me on fire. And that's what I write. And I cannot imagine doing anything differently. So look at your bookshelf. That shouldn't, you know, tell you what should, what are you writing? Where is your passion? That's awesome. That's a great tip. I love, you know, the whole idea of writing from your passion that's, um, it's always been something that really hits a note in me because even though 
you know, like I've, I've had different kinds of writing jobs in the past, whether it's freelance or, or something else where somebody's paying me to write a certain thing and I can do it. Um, and it takes work sometimes to do some of it. Others are not as difficult. But um, when I first, the very first time, I can remember where I was. I don't know what year it was, but I remember where I was and who I was with. And I was on this little writer's retreat. And my friend, uh, I don't know uh, if you read any of Lorraine Snelling. She also writes. Oh, she's uh, wonderful and a favorite, yes. Yeah. So Lorraine and Kathleen and I were at our little writer's retreat together. And I, I read, you know, part of a part of the first chapter and they were both like, yeah, it's good. And I'm like, oh, that's bad. Oh. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's good. Isn't going to get picked up by an agent or an editor. <laughs> You're so right. It has to yeah. be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and Lorraine said, have you ever heard of this thing called chiclet? And I'm like, no, what's that? And she's like, all right, we're going to the bookstore. We're doing a research trip. And I read like the first page of two or three chiclet novels that were, you know, relatively newish. Um, and I was just like, oh my gosh, it was all I could do not to be like screaming in the bookstore. I had to go back to where we were writing them. Then I did my screaming. I'm like, if there were no rules about writing and I could just throw words on the page exactly the way that I would do it, this yes. is what I would write. And Isn't like, that amazing? You should just go write it. So I rewrote the first chapter and the two of them, you know, a little hyperbole to say rolling on the floor laughing, but they loved it. Oh, and right. I got an agent because. Oh, see, you found your passion. Yeah. So I, I totally will always be somebody who raises my hand and says, yeah, I could write that if I think I could. But when it comes down to 80,000 words in a couple of months or a year, I think that writing what you're really passionate about, what really flows out of you because you love it is probably the easier, better bet. It is. You know, there's no worse gig now that I think about it than being saddled. I, it takes me about a year to research and write a novel now. Um, my first, The Frontiersman's Daughter, my first novel took me 10 years. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, it, make sure you're in love with this concept or, you know, premise or your characters, because you have to live with these people for months. Yeah. And if you don't really love them, it, it, you know, it's probably going to leak and the reader is going to feel that. Yeah. So yes, you are so right when you found your chiclet. And how in, amazing is Lorraine to nail that and I know. do that. that you know, yeah. Uh, first of all, she's brilliant when she's just talking to a room full of people that she doesn't know. But, um, you know, for, for when, you, when you're around people who know you or when you're around people that you really, these are your friends, you know them, you've known them for a long time. Yeah. You just have these moments of inspiration and light bulb and go, you know, what about this for you? And then the other person's like, oh my gosh, right. Why didn't I think of that? As iron sharpens iron, there's a lot to that. Writers, you know, it's kind of sad that we, you know, nobody writes a book in company. Well, I don't. It's an isolation. Yeah. Um, books are written by your, you know, at your desk, not, you know, all by yourself. But it, those times of fellowship with writers are so important. And I would encourage, you know, writers at whatever stage of the journey, if you're feeling kind of isolated and out there, find some people that you that understand what you're doing. I mean, there are a lot of writers out there. Sometimes they're hard to find, but 
but writers need that fellowship. It's so important. And like you're living proof of the story you just said, uh, what that just was totally life giving and changed your whole direction. So, you know, especially in those early days, well, I think it's, it stands true for any aspect of where you are on your writing journey find with you know find other writers they don't have to write your same genre although that's nice but just writers think very differently than most people yeah get together yeah. with those people who appreciate books yeah i totally agree and you know what uh, just because i had this conversation at work today i'm going to add one more addition uh, to your bit of advice too i was talking to some people uh, so i have this 6 month job at a video game company so there's a part of me that's like, I don't know, like if other people think that, you know, she looks too old or whatever to be here. Or I don't know. I don't know what I look like because I can only see, you know what I mean? You <laughs> right. can only see yourself the way you see yourself. But anyway, so, but there is a certain weirdness. Like if you look at the numbers, like I'm a 50 year old woman who just got a job at a video game company and I've never worked in video games before. <laughs> You, How weird is that? You are brave. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm hanging around all these people who are so creative and I feel like I am a desert that is suddenly like the oasis has just sprung up and covered the desert. Like I just feel green and fresh and full of oh, that's everything. Beautiful. Oh, it's so fabulous. And oh. there's a part of me that's like, seriously, I need to get these people to, to oh. hire me and keep me on because I am so full of all this creative energy and I'm hanging out with these people and we're talking about, oh, let's take our laptops and like go write on our novels at lunchtime twice a week in the park, you know? Oh and, my word, that's heaven. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can see you taking this and it's spinning it into another chiclet setting. <laughs> I actually was thinking about uh, emailing an editor that I know and say, are you interested in like a uh, chiclet sort of thing set in the video game industry? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was was my first thought. Woo. Oh, but, <laughs> but it's funny because, um, and, and this is where the advice is coming in and people who've been listening to my show for a long time, they've probably heard bits and pieces of this, but this is like brand new thoughts from today, folks. So um, when I, when I decided to take this job, I was like, well, it's only six months and I was in very much of a desert place um, in my life in general and in writing also. And a couple of my friends were like, I really think that you should take it because I think that you need a break, like a break from trying to force your way through the, the publishing and, and trying to make a living from it kind of mindset and just relax, like be in a place where you can relax and I bet your creativity will come back. Yeah. And I think that's really true, except for having a full-time job and a podcast and like a husband and a life and taxes in a couple of different countries. That's a lot of work. And I haven't actually been able to do any writing, which has been killing me. And I I said these interesting words today that just sort of came out. And then I was like, wow, I I hadn't meant to say that, but that's exactly how I feel. Um, I feel a little bit like I'm suffocating, like I don't have enough air because I'm not doing any writing, which... Honestly, after like such a long dry spill, it feels so good to feel like I'm suffocating. It must mean that like I'm beginning to breathe creativity again, you know? That's true. It's like the, you're being replenished and get, getting green now and you're yeah. going, it's all going to gush over into your writing when you get back to that. That's, yeah. We do have to have those times of infilling because otherwise, you know, the creative well can run dry 
and yeah. you, it becomes more like work. So you need, I remember Stephen King, he wrote, he wrote one of the few craft books that I really could relate to and understand. I, I can't remember his exact wording, but he said he'd, he never quite, quite feels normal unless he's writing. And I think that's true. You know, there's always something missing if writers aren't writing. There are, good, there are times to come away from that. And, you know, we, we probably won't die writing. It's a season. But um, heavens, it's wonderful to hear your story because th those times of, of getting green and, and replenishing and renewing our creativity are so important. And I yeah. bet whatever you, when you go back to it, that all that 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 new life and energy will show in your next endeavor. Yeah, yeah. So I really want to encourage anyone who's thinking, but I'm supposed to be trying to get out of my current job and into being a full-time writer. Well, maybe, but what if there is something about what you're doing right now that is actually increasing and helping to grow the creativity that you have, then maybe you don't want to get rid of it. Yes. Excellent point. I, I just think that's so true. And if I could jump in real quick, I don't want to let one writing tip that uh, get away from us because I know we're nearing the end. Uh, I'm a firm believer for years. I wrote for, you know, I've been writing for 40 years or so. And it wasn't until the last like five years that I understood the benefit when you're in the editing process and editor mode, the benefit of reading aloud your manuscript. Listen, folks, I was not a believer in this. For years, I just attacked it on my, you know, my document that I had. I just, I never uttered it aloud. And now there's programs that, that speak it back to you. But I would, uh, I think one of the best editing tips that I could give today and it just keeps popping in my mind, is when you don't have to be done with your manuscript. If you've only even got a few chapters and you want to edit it in a different way than normal, other than the red pens and all that or whatever you use, start and start reading it in your own voice aloud. You will be amazed at what you catch to change. I'm kind of shuddering as I think that I only did that for the last few novels. It should have been a requirement for the first ones too. But anyway, I'm a big, big proponent of um, speaking, your, speaking your novel aloud as an editing tool. And it is quite an interesting process. And it brings the story to life in a different way. Yeah. I love it. That's a great tip. Yeah. I love it. In fact, I've, I've started to enjoy the actually speaking the novel um, more than any other editing. I mean, just editing off the document, you know, on your whatever you're using program you're using, it just about puts me to sleep by the time you've gone over <laughs> the novel like 30 times by the yeah. galley stage or whatever. And then it becomes too late when you get the pages. But early on, it's just invaluable, I think, as a tool. And it just kind of streamlines the book. You catch things, you know, inconsistencies that you would miss otherwise. And you're, you become very alert to your character's voices. You know, what do they sound like when they speak? It's yeah. very different than when you just read it. So yeah. my two cents. I love it. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, all right. So A Bound Heart is your newest book. It came out in January. And um, 
we know that you have written a, a lot of other uh, historicals set in the colonial period of America. Uh, do you have uh, something that you can tell us about what the book is that you're working on now or what's the next one to come out, which isn't always the same book? <laughs> I know, you're right. I, I always, people are amazed when I say writers or authors are usually dealing with three books at a time, you know, if you're contracted. Yeah. Uh, I, I talked a little bit about Jamestown. That's the book I'm currently writing. I just hit the like 70K mark, which right. it, the book's gone pretty fast because I've been so fascinated by it. But um, let's talk about, I guess, since we covered that, we'll just do a brief blurb about this next frontier novel coming out next January. So we've okay. got a bound heart that just released my Scottish coming to America story. I, I tend to, my readers, poor readers get whiplash. I go <laughs> off the frontier and then I veer into colonial Williamsburg, you know, more genteel settings. So I'm yeah. coming off a bound heart, which was ended up in colonial Williamsburg, but um, uh, I'm veering off again to the frontier this time in present day, West Virginia, which was not Virginia, you know, West Virginia until, well into the 19th century, so it was still Western Virginia, but it's a story, it has an Indian captivity theme, and I have to say, there are two, two women in the novel, there's the heroine, but there's actually two heroines in this novel, oh, and wow. I have to say, I love the blonde-haired heroine, I think almost more than my, the main heroine, that's never <laughs> happened before, in fact, my editor wrote me and said, you're secondary heroine is is overshadowing your heroine she's so <laughs> strong and I was loving that because she's my favorite but anyway yeah. uh, so we're getting a frontier story it's uh, currently being titled and uh, and cover art has begun which is my favorite part of the publishing process so I nice. should be able to give you a look at this next book in June when Ravel polishes that cover and finish finalizes that title and we see it online with retailers and I can share it. So stay tuned. Awesome. Well, that is a perfect segue into where can people uh, catch up with you online, follow you online, find your books? Oh, great. Great question. Uh, I'm pretty active on social media. I love my Website's about a year old, my newly designed one. I try Ooh. to keep active. I, I don't like the word blog, so I call it journal. That's more in keeping with my historical my bent. And so, you know, come visit me on my journal page. Subscribe to my post. I, I work very hard on my monthly newsletters. I, I try to make them, you know, I tell you what I'm reading. I include a recipe. I do a giveaway. And it you get the first sneak peeks of everything I'm doing. So, you know, go to my website, sign up for whatever, if it looks good to you, join me on, I have a, a pretty good Pinterest following and I'm very active on my author page on Facebook. I'm a Twitter dropout. I had to create account <laughs> because there was a, another woman with my name who said, look, <laughs> I'm getting confused with you. Can you just put your Twitter up there? And so I had to create account for her, but I'm never on Twitter, sadly. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and uh, it's just too brief, I guess. Twitter's yeah. just too brief. And I'm, a, I'm into prosy things, yeah. long-winded things. Um, but Amazon, you know, read my book, book blurbs, christianbook.com, Lifeway, whatever. I would love to see you anywhere you choose to, to land. Excellent. And your website address one more time is? Is lafrance.net, N-E-T. Okay. And your right last up. 
Okay, and your last name sounds like the country France, but is actually spelled, I've got it here, F-R-A-N-T-Z, right? Right, and I've been told by a genealogist that it's pronounced France, but the modern day corruption is France, like the country. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take either one. France is what we go by. Laura Excellent. France. All right, laurafrance.net. Yes. Excellent. Great. Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been super fun. And after all that talk about uh, food and drink and everything, I'm like, I think I need to go make some brownies for work tomorrow. <laughs> That's exactly where I'm headed to the kitchen. <laughs> it's been a delight to be with you and your audience. I'm so honored. Thank you.